I'm delighted to announce that the National Association for Primary Education has exclusively released a video from its Primary Education Summit, Visions for the Future. This video, recorded by me, Mark Taylor, and Al Kingsley, talks about creating digital strategies for schools. This video is available for you to watch now at educationonfire.com forward slash blog, which I really hope gives you a taster of some of the amazing content that was available as part of that Primary Education Summit. That's educationonfire.com forward slash blog. Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place for creative and inspiring learning from around the world. Listen to teachers, parents and mentors share how they are supporting children to live their best authentic life and are proving to be a guiding light to us all. Hello, welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast. I hope you're well. Thank you so much for joining me. I know normally I say maybe you're in the gym, maybe you're walking the dog, but I guess the chances are this time of year that you may well be on your holidays. You may be relaxing, listening to it on the beach, wherever you are. Thank you so much for joining me. Now, today is a fascinating conversation for me because my life is multifaceted. I'm a, a musician, I'm a teacher, I'm a podcaster, so much going on in our family life as well. And today I'm chatting to Dakota Irby and he's in exactly the same position. He does so many different things. He creates teaching and learning experiences, music and stories and opportunities for people in the community. He's a professor at the University of Illinois in Chicago. He's the author and co-editor of several books, including Stuck Improving Racial Equity and School Leadership and a children's book, Magical Black Tears, A Protest Story. Now, through all of his work, he's committed to creating spaces that bring people together in the community. And he's an active in his neighborhood community garden and he even serves as treasurer in his local park advisory council. So you can see he does that and he's also a self-taught guitarist and a songwriter, performer, recording artist. And all of this you can check out on his website, which is dakotaerby.com. So without further ado, let's get on with the conversation. Hi, Dakota. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Education on Far podcast it's fascinating to talk to someone who, like myself, has sort of many different facets that build up their career in terms of musician and educator in so many different ways. So thanks so much for being here. And and just talk us through a little bit about sort of how that kind of work, I guess, work-life balance or more importantly, work-work balance seems to work for you. Mm-hmm. Thank you, uh, first of all, Mark, for inviting me onto your podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, so again, you know, my name is Dakota Irby. And yeah, I wear many hats. Uh, it's been interesting because it's only been recently, specifically throughout the pandemic, that I really decided to start to try to put all of these different facets of what I do kind of like together. You know, before that, it was kind of I presented myself as a professor at a university and everything else was kind of secondary. If I was playing with musicians, I would have friends who would say, oh, we didn't know you were you, we didn't know you've written a book. And then the people that I've written a book would say we had no idea you play guitar. So I really appreciate um, this question. And a lot of it comes about from, um, I think, kind of like just me being a curious person. Um, And so I tend to be a person that gravitates towards things that I think um, are challenging, but that will have some kind of fulfillment um, that will come from trying to do something new. Um, I have a degree in economics. That's what I went to undergrad for. And uh, I moved to Philly, to Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania to go to graduate school. And that's how I found myself working with young people. Um, I was a musician before I was an educator and economist. I was, I've always been in hip hop music. I sang on the choir at my church. Uh, I was in a band in college. Um, and so when I moved into my professional career, it 
just seamlessly made sense for me to incorporate a lot of the kind of music uh, into my work with young people. And so I started off working with adjudicated youth and young people in Philadelphia. And uh, the cool thing um, about working in alternative educational spaces is that oftentimes you have a lot of freedom to engage young people in a, many ways that you're not allowed to or not able to do in like public school settings to have a more traditional curriculum. And so I was able to, you know, incorporate a lot of hip hop, a lot of like spoken word, poetry, um, all of those different sorts of things. And also just as a way of having uh, strong relationships with the young people that I work with, teenagers, um, you know, we talked about music and we talked about, you know, who the, who the dopest new rappers were. And, you know, so that was something that I was always kind of um, bringing a lot of my creative interests and musical interests into educational spaces. And that's something that I just uh, continued for a long time when I was working with young people. And then when I transitioned into academia, uh, for some reason, I put it down. Like I never talked to my colleagues or I never really uh, brought kind of like my uh, artistic passions and pursuits into the academic setting, like I said, until more recently. And so a lot of the things that I've been doing, um, including being engaged with community, um, you know, I'm very interested in cooperatives as uh, um, as a business model uh, that will benefit, you know, communities that are on the margins of, the, you know, economic benefits of a society. Um, so interested in all those kind of things. And um, yeah, just more recently have started to really kind of embrace those as a part of, you know, what I would call my work. Um, so. I really find it fascinating. There's two things there. One is the fact that it seems amazing, isn't it, that you need to be in what you can call an alternative education situation where you're allowed to have the freedom to connect with people. Because you would think, no matter what the setting, that's the most important thing. How do you make the children feel? How do you connect? How do you relate? And you just need to find those those touch points in terms of making that happen um and then sort of bringing that full circle like you say into sort of life as in academia it's that kind of you never quite know what it is that you who you are that you can connect with somebody else that if you don't show up as your full self like you say as the musician as the as the person who works here and is important this sort of this area of life is important and you know community and, and whatever it happens to be it's only by actually showing up fully as yourself that those conversations start or or you have a connection with someone that you would never have had otherwise and and, and just um my, my wife was working the other day with somebody and um and she's sort of got a, a, a sort of a part-time job that she does around being a professional musician and um and so she was playing lord of the rings at the albert hall with the um the royal Philharmonic orchestra and it's an, an amazing experience and so um, one of the people she was working with said, "Oh, you weren't here on Sunday." She said, "No, I was, you know, I was doing this concert, and it was a piece of work that enabled me to to go and do that." And I said, "Oh, I, I love musical theatre. I love listening to this, 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 and this." And she said, "It's amazing because I've I've literally been working with you for like eighteen months or so, and we would have never had that conversation. I would have never have put you down as someone who was interested in that kind of thing. And just because she'd showed up at a different way on a different day, like I say, the whole thing opens up." Yeah, absolutely. Um... It's something that I'm uh, really starting to appreciate, like I said, more recently. But yeah, the ability to, you know, institutions and organizations, educational institutions, they're, you know, peculiar in that they have a lot of, you know, unwritten kind of scripts that you're supposed to, you know, that we think we're supposed to follow when we step into certain places. And, 
you know, that has meant for me, um, and I think probably for a lot of people, that, you know, you put down certain identities when you, like, literally walk into that door, into that building, um, into that community, uh, you know, operating on the assumption that, you know, that particular um, part of oneself might not be valued in that space. I mean, one of the things that I find interesting, too, is that um, my writing um, the way that I write is really deeply informed by uh, my undergraduate experience in theater. Um, and so I was very interested. I've written plays. I was actually a member of the Dramatist Guild. I actually uh, was going to apply to go into, uh, uh, to, to NYU, to New York University's um, playwriting program. And so now when I do qualitative research as an academic, the way that I kind of write and um, write about people really draws very heavily from a lot of the things that I worked writing plays. And one of the things that was always been something that sticks with me when I'm writing is that everybody, we will always learn that everyone uh, that's on the stage or on the page that you write into the story has to want and need something. And everything that they're doing has to be aligned with what they want and need, even if those wants and needs might seem contradictory. And so that's something that I also bring into my work in education. When I work with young people, I always keep in mind that everybody that's here wants or needs something. And part of my responsibility is to try to figure out what that what those wants and those needs are and try my best to fulfill them during the you know two hours of time that I have with them. And that's been kind of a cornerstone of how I've worked. And even in terms of my uh, scholarship, which is, you know, would fall into the camp of like critical scholarship um, in terms of how I think about race, um, gender and so on and so forth. And a lot of people are always curious about how I can write in a way that is critical about racism, sexism, so on and so forth, but also write in a way that like humanizes the people so they're not flat. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from, um, you know, my theater background uh music writing songs you know a lot of that stems from you know putting yourself into somebody else's shoes you know it might be something simple like you know you're in the car and you see something that might only last for 10 seconds and then if you can just perspective take and imagine what that person might be experiencing that becomes the place from which to like write so it's interesting how all of this kind of like comes together but again the tendency that i've had for so many years to like leave a lot of those kinds of ideas that really inform how I think at the door when I walk into a particular place. Yeah, absolutely. And just I'm interested always, especially sort of from your from your sort of teaching standpoint. You know, like you say, I love what you said about it's that connection, it's the story, it's it's all of that that goes on with every single person that you're connecting with. How do you go about sort of doing that? when it's kind of one to many? I don't, I don't know how many people you have within your classes and, and the kind of the way that you work, but how, how do you sort of do that, like say within the limited time scale, but also with the multiple people? Yeah, well, a lot of it is trying to create a sense of community and collective sense of responsibility for one another. Um, I've always realized that um, it's very difficult to be able to you know, identify everybody's wants and needs on my own, but if you can get uh, the people in a particular learning community in a classroom, whether it's an organization, to become more attuned with wants and needs by the kinds of questions that you ask, uh, by how um, you create routines to facilitate conversations and that sort of thing, 
then it allows for people to be able to tap in in a way that one person can't. Um, and so that's what I kind of think of. And just to give a concrete example of that, you know, I teach um, adults now in a graduate program. Most all of my students are adults. Um, and I think I probably, you know, I might kind of drive them crazy because I do a lot of uh, when we start class, you know, we do round robin where, you know, people share something about themselves. And it might be something small like, um, you know, one of the, my favorite prompts is to ask people what makes their feet feel good. Right. What is something that you love? you know, that makes your feet feel good. So I ask these kind of quirky questions, which really provides the opportunity for people to share parts of themselves that you might not think people need to know, but they can become very important in times where people need support. And so, for example, if someone is like, you know, some people say, I love being at the beach um, and standing, you know, on the shore, this is, you know, uh, and feeling kind of like the waves and the sand kind of coming together under my feet. But typically that experience is connected to, you know, their families or something like that. And if I ask the question, for example, uh, we're going to start class by everybody sharing if they could have dinner or lunch with one person um, living or passed away, who would that be and why really quickly? And that gets people to talking about their loved ones and that sort of thing. It also gets people talking about their religious and faith traditions and mentioning those things. So some people might say, well, I would have, you know, uh, I would have dinner with, you know, Mother Teresa. And otherwise, they would no reason for them to bring that up. But that gives us some insight into who that person is, which I've found if you do that, when I do that on a regular basis, it builds this kind of understanding of where people um, are coming from, their past. A lot of people, when I do that prompt, talk about um, wanting to have dinner with someone in their family who's been meaningful to them, who's passed away, grandparents or parents. Um, and so I think those kinds of things, those kind of routines that don't fit quite within like the curriculum that might take 10 or 15 minutes of time, create the kinds of learning conditions where people are open and able to listen and understand where people are coming from. And so I do that every single class um, and in spaces that I'm leading and facilitating learning, I ask those questions and People are just like, why aren't we jumping into the reading or why aren't we doing X, Y, Z? But then by the time they end it, a lot of them adapt, adopt the practice in their educational settings, too. Mm -hmm. And once you get the routine kind of going, it's not like I need to facilitate it. I can put a question out and I'll say, you know, by let's say like week five, I'll say we're not going to do a whole class round robin. But I would like for you all to pose a question as a round robin in your small groups. And so it might be three or four people, but they have the routine down. And so they ask themselves the questions and I say, I call it welcoming one another into the space by listening. Um, and it just sets a different kind of context for like how people learn and relate to one another um, that is hard to achieve when you don't take the time to create those kinds of connections. And I guess there's a ripple effect there, isn't there? Because like you say, that there might be something which someone picks up in the room and it's like, I'm going to have a conversation that I might not have had just because I know you'll understand, you'll be empathetic, you'll relate to something. Um, and and like you said, you can't be the person that helps everybody or has a conversation with everybody, but they start to kind of form their own groups um, naturally as humans based on, on what they're picking up. Yeah, absolutely. And I just, one of the things that I, it requires um, doing it right. And, there's two parts to it. One is demonstrating that it's okay 
and actually expect it. Um, and then the other part is giving people just the practice of doing it enough times to where they're just like, you know, my, my general, what I'm always working towards in terms of the relationship building is in learning context is if we don't do it, we know and can feel that we didn't. And so that's the goal that I'm always working towards, because once you get to that point and I can kind of, you know, know when that's happening and, you know, people don't know, like we didn't, we, should we check in? We didn't check in or someone comes in late and people want to try, try to make sure that we create the space for that person to be able to respond to the prompt. Those are the kind of things that I look for in terms of like whether the commitment to the relationships are taking root within a particular learning community. Yeah, and they're real. They're really taking ownership, I guess, aren't they? Of like, say, of, of that shared experience, which is yeah, it's, it's, so, it's so powerful. And and I guess for someone like yourself who has that experience and and can sort of set these pathways up, you can you can sort of steer the questions and you can you can create them in such a way as that they kind of lead. Like, say, the, the first session might be a very generic one, but opens a door, and then you know, like I say, by the time you get into week five and beyond, then they can be very different and people are so much more comfortable that i guess the topics can be a little bit more specific yeah absolutely absolutely and then we also get to a point where sometimes there'll be ones that um you know students are curious about too and so um yeah it's a it's a really nice routine and like i said i think that the um the challenge is always that people think that i'm you know quote unquote wasting time when we start it and then over time people appreciate um the the routine and what engaging in that routine and taking the time to do it actually does in terms of creating a different set of conditions for people to learn together and and you mentioned there that you know this is an adult class so what sort of age range um are we talking about are they sort of young adults or or, or what age um but also have you used the same sort of technique sort of within your sort of experience in different educational settings as well yeah, I've uh, so most of the time, most of my work has been with uh, teenagers, young adults, and then older adults. Um, I haven't used these routines on kind of like an ongoing, regular basis with you know um, ch small children and adolescents, which is something interesting for me to think about. Um, so I appreciate you asking. I just, I guess, I've never really fully recognize that I haven't tried it with that age group and I'm wondering how it will work and how they would take it up. Um, and yeah, I've done it in a number of different um, organizations, a number of different kind of learning settings, um, just as a practice. And typically, like I mentioned, if it's something where it's like a professional development session or something like that, uh, you know, I might do it. Um, I might not, depending on kind of like what the goals are, how many times we'll return. But I find that it's particularly important when working with a community or group of people who are going to be learning together over, you know, a relatively extended period of time, you know, six weeks or more. It really becomes something kind of important. Um, it's one of the things, too, is it helps people treat one another better, <laughs> um, you know, especially when you ask when you start to get to some of the deeper questions, especially the who would you have dinner or lunch with? Like those get very personal. Um, and people oftentimes begin to realize that they have more in common and that they're bringing um, similar sets of experiences um, and hurts, harms, grief, those sorts of things to the space with them. Um, 
And so people see similarities where oftentimes they otherwise would not have unless given the opportunity to talk about, you know, for example, a parent or someone passing or um, even things like music or, you know, travel experiences and those sorts of things and kind of what they mean. But as you mentioned, there's a kind of sequencing where depending on what the topic is for the day and what we're talking about, the more um, personal and questions that invite people to be a little bit more vulnerable, create a unique kind of conditions that allow for people to be vulnerable um, and courageous with whatever the learning content is as well. And I, I know you're sort of focused on equity and, and I know specifically related to your family and like I say, creating a, a world that you, you want them to be able to, to thrive in. Is it this kind of this kind of approach to life, which is sort of showing how connected and how similar we are in so many ways? Is that is that a great stepping stone in terms of sort of opening up those conversations and creating that environment where equity isn't necessarily something you have to, I don't know, have to achieve in a kind of a more formal setting? Yeah, I think so. Um, I. I think that there's a lot of kind of um, overlap between how I think about what's, so you've probably heard me talk about this a lot. A lot of what I'm thinking about is like what changing the conditions of an organization or of a society or of a community, what the conditions, changing the conditions and rewriting um, the rules around how people can engage um, gives people a sense of possibility um, and an experience of how they would like to engage. Um, and so I guess a, a very simple way to break that down is kind of like what I was talking about before in terms of um, the kind of like listening, uh, you know, what I, what I, well, one of the things, for example, that I ask people to do is, um, really deeply listen. And so one of the practices that I, I'm telling a bunch of practices now I'm realizing this, but I talk, one of the things that I do early in my classes and when I do a lot of PDs is I ask people to talk for two minutes. I give them a prompt and I ask people and I literally time it, right? Which is a time being a structure. And I say, you have two minutes, right? To talk and then the other person has two minutes to just listen. And the funny thing that I say is like, you know, there's no need to respond take the full two minutes. And if you don't use the full two minutes, that's perfectly okay. Just sit in silence. And so everybody's like, oh, this is really weird. But now it takes that two minutes of time. Um, a lot of times people early on don't fill it up uh, because we live in a society where, you know, the idea is to get your idea out as quickly as possible. And then people are going to respond to it as quickly as possible. We don't have space and wait time. And so trying to create a new set of conditions, even within a five minute time span where people have two minutes each to talk uninterrupted and another person can listen. And then we process what that experience is. And what I always like to do when we're debriefing this activity is to ask people to think about, especially children and young people. Do do you feel children or when have you given children and young people the opportunity for talk to talk for two minutes uninterrupted where you just get to where you're just listening? And everybody's like, wow. Right. Um, but again, the important thing that I'm always thinking about is that the structure of what I'm asking people to do with that time is the thing that helps them then understand 
and appreciate the importance of listening even beyond that particular um, you know, context, even if it's only for two minutes, because lots of people in society, unless they are, you know, privileged or, you know, like a professor giving a keynote or somebody lecturing or somebody that's in a position of authority, the vast majority of people don't have two minutes where they can speak in a day uninterrupted where people would just listen, listen to them. And so I really try to drive that point home um, and just try to make the point that we would know and be able to um, interact and treat one another differently if we could listen to people who don't have a platform, who don't have the opportunity to speak uninterrupted, if we could just listen to them for two minutes. And I really think that the two sides of the coin of that are, are almost like chalk and cheese, aren't they? And as much as we're not talking about giving too much two minutes for someone to talk in as much as we're taking that two minutes to listen to what they're saying, because I think that's where the power comes, isn't it? That's where, that's where the being heard is so incredibly important. And I know certainly from my own experience, it's so hard not to, to jump in. I don't know if it's a male thing. Sometimes I'm just going to give you the answer. I'm just going to fix it. I've got an idea. And I say, just shut up and just, listen to what's going on and, and and it can be really important stuff it can also be something quite trivial but i think it becomes a habit almost as well like you're saying so to re to reconnect with that and create an environment where you notice that either you're doing it or that or that you want you can feel the power of it then then there's there's so much so much wonder in there as well and, and i just think for so many people listening you know like you said oh, we haven't got time to to do something at the beginning of the session or, or to open these sorts of things up there is time if you want there to be time. And like I said, the benefits of doing that, I just think from everybody involved in that learning experience, from a teacher to a professor to, to the children or whoever the, the learning um, people who are learning, it's a really, really, I don't know, it, it just takes on a whole new meaning of, of, of the experience, but also what you're there to learn. Yeah. And the thing that the thing that I really appreciate about it is similar to how I was talking about the, um, you know, welcoming kind of routines like these two minute pieces end up being really rich because it's very simple for people to do so by the time you get into week four week five all you have to do is say in your breakout sessions right in your breakouts or in your small groups or when you're talking to one another make sure everybody has the opportunity to listen or to talk for a full two minutes and one of the things that is that always happens is that Early on, people don't fill up the two minutes. And then in time, people actually fill up the two minutes and people become better listeners. And it creates this sense of um, equity within the group because people know they're going to have the two minutes. And it becomes this uh, kind of um, commitment and expectation amongst the people who are members of, the, of this learning community that I'm going to have two minutes. Right. Um, and so eventually, you know, when you get to week six, week seven, week eight, it's just a quick reminder. And so practicing those things early on and me having to actually literally have my timer and say, that's your time and that sort of thing. People actually they take up the practice on their own. And so it actually creates a tremendous amount of efficiencies. It creates efficiencies as you start to move through, because you could it's the difference between having a group who doesn't have the practice, but you say you're going to have 10 minutes to discuss or talk. And there's three people in the group 
and they can't finish in the 10 minutes because they haven't practiced listening to one another. Um, but you can have that same group and say, everybody jump into your groups and that group of three can accomplish everything they need to accomplish in that 10 minute period. Because number one, they've gotten used to, um, they have the commitment and they know they're going to get to share what they want to share uninterrupted. And then they also have developed a better capacity to listen to one another. And so they can get through the 10 minutes uh, with a much higher level of quality of exchange and engagement than they would if they didn't have to practice going into that 10 minute period, um, which then, you know, you will come back into like a whole group setting or you share back out and people are talking about this is what I heard such and such say, or they might say something like, you know, my group partner, you know, Mark said this, Mark, would you be willing to share with the group what you said? Because I found it was really powerful. And then, you know, Mark, you would say, Dakota, what you said was pretty powerful. This resonated with me. And so you start to see this kind of uh, interchange and um, elevating of one another's ideas as opposed to the default, I think, which is the competitiveness of everybody trying to get, you know, their voice heard, their ideas out um, in a way that doesn't reflect that they've listened to what the other people in their in their group have said. So in time, it actually works out really well. But um, which is why I think so many people um, in my classes and groups that I work with and facilitate their learning end up adopting the practice practices over time, even though they feel kind of ridiculous at the beginning. You know, like you're telling somebody like if you finish, if, you, if somebody in your group does not use the full two minutes, just don't say anything. You know, and they're just like, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem like a good use of time. I'm like, nah, just it's OK. Just stare at one another. It'll be all good. You know what I mean? Um, and so people, people end up really appreciating it over time. Yeah. And I, I love the sense of empowering people. That's the other thing, you know, because like I say, for someone who's not used to sort of standing up figuratively, but you know, even just sitting there talking for someone, you know, I'm going to tell you what I need to tell you. And I've, I've got this time to be able to do it. There'll be some people that'll be really difficult for, you know, because like I say, it can be a long time to feel like it's just your space and it's your platform to do whatever. So the empowerment that comes with that and also the fact that you have to take on board what everyone has said. So immediately you're having to kind of analyze and decide, you know, do I agree? Do I not agree? How do I want to respond? Because I can't just jump in. Um, and, and the empowerment to, like you said, you know, to have that platform to say, no, Dakota, okay, so this was so impactful and it really made me think and it wasn't what I was maybe I thought I was going to get out of this conversation and, and to, for that to be able to share it and then have a collective kind of listening like you say because you've already set the scene um that it's just that as a learning and, and a growing um experience I just think it's it's so important and I just think some of these sort of fundamental learning skills you know they're the foundation of what we need across the board before we start talking about any given subject or lesson or anything like that, which I guess is the whole reason for starting it, like say at the beginning of every session. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm curious always about people's education experience or teachers that they've had. Is, is there someone or an experience that you've had that kind of maybe helped drive this or, or the lack of it, which made you kind of sort of bring it in, into your practice? What's your experience um, from that sort of younger educational standpoint? Yeah, well, I'll start off by saying, um, in a way, my very early years, educational years, are kind of a blur. Um, I was not the most well-behaved child um, in school. In fact, by the time that I got to middle school, um, my mother started to volunteer 
on a Friday afternoons in the school, in the, in the school office, just so she could be present because I got into trouble and stuff so much. Um, so a lot of a lot of it is a blur. I mean, I always had a way with words and what we would call in the South, you know, the Southern part of the United States, a smart mouth, which means that I would, you know, kind of talk back and have smart, smarty pants remarks and things to say to people a lot. Right. So I was pretty good at, you know, cracking jokes and kind of witty. Um, and I brought all of that into the educational environment with me, which was really a problem for teachers and that sort of thing. It made me, you know, it made the other young people, children and stuff like me, but it was a, it was a problem. Um, I have my own children now, so I can see, uh, how, uh, it's, um, you know, I, I say like, you know, I always realized that, um, I always wonder how my children would be. And, you know, one of my children in particular is very similar to me in this way. So, um, but really when I started to hit my stride was when I was in ninth grade and, uh, there was a teacher, her name was Debbie Barron. And I don't know how I even got into her class, but she had a, uh, like a debate class or something like that. And I think one of the most impactful aspects of my education was joining the speech and debate team. Um, and when I joined the speech and debate team, and I'm talking about um, you know formal education, one of the things that I really, really loved doing in that class was engaging in like Lincoln-Douglas debate. And so it's a particular kind of format of debate where you don't even know necessarily um, where you argue multiple sides of you know the same argument. It might be you know. Uh, you know, sentence, you know, um, sentencing disparities between, you know, powder cocaine and crack cocaine should be, you know, on par with one another. And I can remember this is something that I did a debate on when I was in high school uh, and I loved it. I mean, it was like I can come to this class and the whole point of the class is for me to argue and debate and come up with ways to win an argument whether I believe in the argument or not, like the whole exercise of having the opportunity to formulate an argument to try to like outwit and to beat my opponent on the other end, I just found it fascinating and I loved it. That led me to begin to get involved with, um, we had a, a program called Youth in Government. I grew up in South Carolina and Youth in Government was a program that basically allowed high school students to take over the state legislature for a week. Um, so we had to introduce bills and we had to like, you know, do everything that, you know, like our, you know, to govern the state. And so we would bring up bills. And one of my bills was the one that I mentioned. Uh, and it was in when I was in 10th grade to reduce the sentencing disparities between powder and crack cocaine, which crack cocaine was more prevalent in black communities and communities of color. And powder cocaine was more prevalent in white communities. And, you know, my argument was that, you know, crack cocaine is derived from powder cocaine, like this disparities have to be racist. Now, in South Carolina, my bill failed miserably. It did not pass. But still, the opportunity to be able to think about those kinds of societal issues and inequities and to formulate arguments around them, um, I just found it fascinating. Um, and so I was involved in that. And my teacher, uh, you know, Debbie Barron, you know, she was the speech and debate coach. And that class, um, by 10th grade, I really started to make some pretty monumental watershed changes in terms of like 
how I thought about education and what I wanted to do. And I became really interested in like my government class. And then we had an economics, like government and economics class. And I was really into all of these kind of disciplines and fields that require like, you know, debate, right? And argumentation. And that's why I ended up, you know, pursuing economics um, in undergrad and, you know, and it, that, and in undergrad, I discovered this thing called graduate school. Where, oh, I can go and like, you know, make, you know, write around arguments and make claims and that sort of thing. And so academia, once I found out what academia was, it just felt very natural. It felt like, um, it felt like when I joined the debate team in 10th grade. Um, and so I think that that's one of the, um, that's probably, I would say the most, other than my mom coming up to the school in middle school to work there to try to get my behavior on track in terms of just like the intellectual engagement in the school environment, it really happened through the debate class. And I mean, that's really quite a journey, isn't it? And I just think that's the power that everybody who's working with a younger person has, is it you're just opening a door and you don't know what that door is going to be. It might be the experience of a class. It might be the freedom. It might be that there's an area of study which you've never come across before. And it's just, it's, it's having that breadth, I think, and understanding and, and the opportunity to, to experience these things. And it, and it really sounds like, you know, while the teacher's given you a different area of, of life to get involved in and you, you sort of find your voice and, and you really kind of go, go into that, what it did was give you a sense of this is where I, I want to spend more time doing this because it's feeding me in terms of who I am. And that's the best kind of empowerment, really, because, you know, then the world is your oyster based on your terms, not just what you're being told to do, which, of course, is, I think, why so many people struggle in school early on, because it's just you don't have the freedom to, to express yourself as you want to. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, yeah, because I was just not into school before I got into debate. You know, I would show up and, you know, by the time I graduated, I was not I did not have the grades to get into, you know, many of the colleges that I wanted to go to because I, you know, my ninth grade and 10th grade year, I didn't really care much. You know, I'm like, if I can get a C, I'll be all good, you know. And uh, <laughs> um, but once I got into debate, it was it was. It really, really drew. Um, it was an opportunity for me to draw, like, like I said, kind of my personality and, you know, m my kind of, you know, want to, you know, argue with people and that sort of thing. And so it was, it was perfect. Like I was like, I can come to school and, and the unfortunate thing is that it was one class, but we did have a speech and debate team and I joined the speech and debate team. And so, like I said, I got re very involved in, um, government economics and those kind of classes history classes and then i also through the speech and debate team got involved with um i think it was called duo interpretation so you would do interpretations of different kind of like um uh poems or plays you would do kind of like these interpretations and i did interpretations of a segment of august wilson's fences um and so that particular um aspect of debate debate i would actually um you know get trophies and stuff in so that was pretty cool i didn't win a lot of trophies in the um lincoln douglas area uh and then that's so the economics piece but when i mentioned earlier that i went into theater the debate also got me into the theater area so when i was an undergrad those were 
two spaces where I spent a lot of my time and the theater piece, the ability to convey ideas, to speak, to take on other characters, situations and do perspective taking and those sorts of things always played a really important role in terms of, you know, my ability to kind of like think about what students need and think about what adult learners need. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah, I would say that the, the most impactful kind of like part of my educational journey, if I go back to my, my formative years, was 10th, 9th, 4th. I can't remember whether it was ninth or 10th grade, but somewhere around that time when I joined the speech and debate team. And it really it really just strikes me that we've sort of got almost full circle in terms of, you know, it, it's about showing up as yourself, like I say, with all those different elements, which have then helped you in so many different facets, you know, going forward. Um but also the fact that school and education aren't necessarily hand in hand. There's no reason why you have to excel or even enjoy in the vast majority of stuff that happens at school. But if you find the thing that does, you know, give you that passion, you know, lights your fire. And like I say, it might be one class, but then there, there's something extracurricular that you can do as well, or that there's something that you can then focus on. That was certainly the case for me, you know, I mean, I didn't mind school, but music was my passion. And so, you know, wind band rehearsal after after school on a Monday, you know, and an evening in a local band and this, you know, all of those things gave me a real sense of what I wanted to spend my time doing. Um, and then school was school, but that's okay because that's just part and parcel of being, you know, someone at that age. But there was enough of the other stuff to kind of make me think, but this is where I want to put my energy, where I want to head. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to not work at everything else necessarily, but I'm going to make sure that this energy in this direction is where... My, my life's going to open up, I guess. And, and that was certainly true of me. You know, I've had the privilege of being a musician, you know, my entire adult life as well as when I, when I was a student as well. So, yeah, it's a, it's a really powerful, powerful thing, I think. So is there a piece of advice that you were given which has made a big impact on your life? Or it might even be a kind of um, a piece of advice you'd give sort of young Dakota who would maybe, maybe, maybe have not taken it on during that time, but would have been a really useful thing to have heard. Wow. That's a really good question. Um, I mean, I think some of it connects back to um, what you just mentioned in terms of finding a thing that is going to keep you kind of moving. Um, it's really going to draw your interest. I think, um, and this is something, I don't know if it's an advi advice. I think it's probably something that I'm always wrestling with thinking about. And some of it has to do with growing up in a very working class family. Um, and it has to do with the constant tension between kind of doing what you have to do um, and being happy. And I'm always kind of like wrestling with, you know, okay, you know, which way do you go? Because I think in a, how I grew up, it was kind of like, you know, you do what you have to do. You know, if you have a family, you support your family, you support yourself, you find, you know, gainful employment and you work and, you know, those sorts of things. Right. And so one of the things that I have, and if you find some happiness in the process, you know, then that's, that's great. Um, and I think now, um, I find myself thinking a lot more about, um, where and to what extent happiness should fit and needs to fit into taking care of yourself. Um, in terms, you know, and I'm talking, when I'm saying taking care of yourself, I'm saying primarily, you know, materially, right. To be able to, you know, have a, have a home and, 
if you have children, be able to provide for their needs, or if you have a partner to be able to contribute and that sort of thing. Um, and so I think some of it is just uh, thinking about it not being a uh, um, either or proposition, but it really trying to figure out what the and is. Um, and I think for a very long time, I think that when I, if I think back to my experience in high school, I think that I had enough at that particular place to make me happy and bring me some joy, but all of it wasn't joy. Um, and there were some things that, you know, I just needed to do. And I just kind of just did. I think that's okay. I think oftentimes that comes into tension with, um, a lot of, especially kind of like young people who I see now trying to really reconcile, um, you know, a lot of it is social media, right? Live your best life um, with, give yourself the opportunity to create the conditions so that you can have a stable life. Um, and so, you know, um, I think I think a lot more now at this point about, um, happiness and even with my own children i'm always thinking about well you know everything is not going to bring you joy and happiness but there's some things that still need to be done right yeah, um sure. so i'm always just thinking about those sorts of things and so i guess the if there was a nugget or a kernel of advice in that it would be to if i could go back i would think about telling myself to make sure that i'm always working towards working in that kind of space between things that I need to do and things that bring me happiness and joy and knowing that those things don't necessarily have to be mutually exclusive, but that they won't necessarily, you won't necessarily find them both always in the same place. Um, yeah. So that's, that's kind of what I would think about. And um, I think that applies to even me teaching, you know, my classes, I'm always like, you know, my gosh, I gotta, you know, I got a grade. I don't like the grade. Right. Um, I need to do it. I need to grade. I need to give feedback. Um, you know, there's those sorts of things. But then there's these other things that I really find joy in. And I try to understand and tell myself that um, in order to get that get to that joy, right, the parts that I like when somebody has a breakthrough, a student has a breakthrough, somebody encounters a reading or a text or a conversation that really shifts their thinking about a particular uh, topic, um, the joy that I get from that is inextricably linked with my willingness to take the time to read and give feedback. And those two things aren't mutually exclusive, but can often reinforce one another. And it, when I even think about it in terms of like music, you know, it's like learning, a, learning a scale that does not feel, you know, does not align with your muscle memory, right? Like I just gotta just keep trying to work on this scale and, you know, eventually, and then breaking outside of a particular, you know, um, plateau that you've hit musically requires that you go. Well, for me, that I go back to something, sometimes some basics of just doing some basic scales or just doing, you know, technique stuff that is just like boring. It's not a song. It's technique stuff. It's keeping my fingers closer to the strings. It's, you know, uh, using my pick going both ways, which I might not do. I'm not even conscious or aware that I'm doing it during a performance, but I need to do this so I can increase my speed or whatever it might be or my accuracy. And those things are fun, um, but they do make a difference in terms of the joy of being able to like during the performance moment, 
And they also create these moments of joy for other people. Right. And that stems in part from doing the stuff that is is not fun, um, but that is important for, you know, making kind of like progress. And everything's a tapestry, isn't it? Like you say, you know, there, there, there's there's levels to all these things, you know, in order to have an experience which you might call joyful or joyful for others like you say there's a bit of work that goes in there which might be a little bit more mundane or practice or, or whatever that happens to be um so i think the idea of it being a tapestry the idea of it being a journey because you know that this particular section of of something which maybe you're not enjoying as much will lead you to something that will um and also i love the fact it was sort of not either or but and that and that just suddenly opens up a whole kind of like almost like a different room of of that because I think so many people are, oh, but I chose to do this so I can't do this or I've I'm I feel like this so I can't feel like that. But as soon as you sort of open that room into an and, but it could be or it's partly or it will be or I know it can it could be, then all of a sudden you can't have that same conversation with with yourself, and then with that comes you know uh, there's a real growth in there and a real learning experience which I think you can then apply to wherever you are in whichever season of your life because th that same kind of conundrum is going to come up again and again and again yeah absolutely absolutely now we all have a resource which is really important or impactful um to each other so is there something you'd like to share and it can be anything from a, a video a song a podcast a book a film it could be anything but something which is specifically personal to you or like i said has an impact or, or a real memory which you'd like to share wow that's a good question i think probably um, the resource that is personal to me that I would like to share, probably I would say, uh, I recorded a music project called, um, without you. Um, and I'm, it was, it, it, I wrote it in, um, at a time in my, well, I had recorded a project before that and the project that preceded it, which is called a contagious spring was one that I kind of did all of my, all of my own as a musician. I had a producer that I worked with that helped me, you know, with the self recording process, I self released it. The second one I worked with a band and it was my first time, um, you know, really working with the band and it was just kind of a really cool experience because it made me feel vulnerable. I taught myself guitar. And so probably for the first three to four years, I kind of didn't even tell people. Um, I was an adult. I was about 24 years old when I started teaching myself. Um, and I didn't tell anybody because I just was like, you know, I'm not, you know, a musician, right? I'm just somebody who's trying to toy around with the guitar. And I think that um, I had an experience. I used to have an old Tascam 16 track recorder. Um, and it was this kind of, you know, before everybody had computers, we record on these Tascams. And when I moved from Philadelphia to Milwaukee, I took the Tascam in the car with me, but some kind of way it, the hard drive got messed up. And I had years of music um, that you know, I just lost because the hard drive went bad on me. And I remember I felt so devastated because I had put all of this energy and work into trying to learn how to play this instrument and writing these songs that I kept private and to myself. And um, I could never share them with anybody. Um, I don't know how to 
write music or read music or anything. So I couldn't recreate a lot of what I had done. And it was at that point in my life, which is around 2010, when I decided that I wasn't just going to sit in the house and make music anymore, but that I was going to try to put out music and uh, be, you know, just do music. So I started going to open mics. I would shake, like my hands would like really, really shake. I had tremendous amount of performance anxiety. Still kind of sort of do. I know how to work through it now, but it was, it was, I was very, very nervous. Um, and I remember that despite being so nervous, like people clapped for me and I probably made a bunch of mistakes, but uh, they clapped for me and everything and people were very encouraging. So I kind of started, you know, going back and going to things. I got more comfortable, but I think that the gift of the recording that I did was that it was a it allowed me to be in community and hear myself in the context of working with other musicians and other people. And so I think there's something special for me as a musician to not just perform, but especially early on to like hear myself. Um, and so that's something that I think was was really cool. And what I what I have taken and what I learned from that is um, for whatever I'm doing or for whatever people are doing in life, it's important to number one, give it a go. Most people don't boo. I've never been booed. <laughs> um, so most people don't boo. People think people boo. But actually, when you try, people know the effort and, you know, people are supportive. And then the other thing is to um, try to figure out ways to listen to yourself. And when I started to listen to myself, still to this day, the thing that I learn every time, whether that's trying to reflect on and understand something that I did when I was teaching, whether it's a prompt or X, Y, Z, is listening to oneself or learning about oneself, being able to kind of step out and see what you've actually done is actually a gift because what I found is typically I'm better than what I think I am in the moment. Yeah, and if you can, like say, if you can record that in any way that you can, then it's a very different perspective, isn't it, than being in your head looking at it. I can, it's, it's, it's so powerful. <laughs> I know that from, from the podcast, you know, just listening to myself as an interviewer from an audience member rather than just being in the moment in the conversation. It, mm. it sounds so different. And as a musician, heard many recordings of myself playing where I think, that really wasn't what I thought it was going to be like to the to the audience, but like I say, you never can tell, and it's only having that experience that makes a makes a big difference. And then to, to wrap up, we always sort of talk here about fire, the idea of feedback, inspiration, resilience, and empowerment. So I'm always interested to know what out of those four things, re feedback, inspiration, resilience, and empowerment, strikes you, and which one would you have to say was the the most important for you? Wow. Well, I think feedback and inspiration are, are very close, very, very close. Um, but I think feedback is the one that probably resonates the most with me in terms of like the fire that kind of like keeps me. That's the kindling on my fire is feedback um, across a number of different um, aspects of my life, whether it's like, you know, parenting, being a partner um teaching like i think the feedback is like really important um both the positive and the negative all right um having that information and having the feedback is just uh you know it helps you figure out how to adjust if 
you want to adjust, but at least you have the information. And so one of the things that I always talk about is I try to make myself as coachable as possible. Um, and, you know, I think even in this particular, like, uh, so a, a, a moment right now that I'm in is, uh, for years, I've just been doing all these different things. And I actually, you know, have a PR team now, uh, from Coriolis company, I'll give them a shout out. Um, and it's really a coaching relationship, you know, where I'm just getting feedback and people are saying, you, you should do this. You should, you know, you can think about this or think about this, or how do you feel about this? And, um, yeah, just the feedback and the opportunity that feedback allows for me to make oftentimes what are like relatively small changes has just been, it's been able to help me just kind of like grow and expand in a way that I don't think that I would be able to if I just felt inspired to do something, right? So for example, I've been wanting to figure out like, how can I do and engage in social media in a way that feels like right for me because i'm not really big into social media but i see the benefits and the importance of it um and so i got a lot of feedback about what i can do this authentic that doesn't make me feel overwhelmed it doesn't you know take over my day um and so i've had the kind of like inspiration by seeing what other people are doing and i've had kind of like this could be like this but i think the feedback um is really more centered on me and myself and the small things that I need to do the like five minutes a day. Right. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Which, you know, is the kind of, uh, the building block for the things that I kind of like, you know, aspire to, to do and you know, how I want to be. Um, and so I think that the one that really resonates me with me is probably the feedback. one. Great. Uh, what, what a great way to finish. And I, I love that correlation between the feedback and being open to be coached because I think like you say you having the feedback and then it being resentful or or I'm not taking that on board because it's not what I want to hear is one thing but to have that breadth to be able to say but I'm willing to be coached and take it on board in whichever way that happens to be I think is inspirational and like you say the two things often go hand in hand but I really appreciate you sharing that so Dakota thank you it's it's fascinating chatting to someone who's got so much in their life going on and I think for so many of us hearing that being all of those things and making it truly you is what makes the the world a better place but also means that you can show up and, and be the best person you can be for everyone in your life so yeah thank you so much for being here thank you so much i really appreciate it thank you for listening and being part of this wonderful community with over 300 episodes i've collated 20 resources from guests that have been on the show to help you in your educational journey and those of you involved with young people just go to educationonfire.com and you can sign up on the homepage. Thanks for listening to the Education on Fire podcast. For more information of each episode and to get in touch, go to educationonfire.com. Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire.